This morning I want to talk about Joseph the faithful father. You know, a lot of times at Christmas time we like to talk about Mary, but today I thought I would focus more on Joseph the father and talk about what we can learn about him from the record of Scripture. Now, starting off today, we'll look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 starts out with the lineage, I would say, of Joseph. Joseph's lineage was, of course, the Lord's legal father. We realize, of course, that God was his father. Mary was a virgin, and God caused the baby inside her. But Joseph, of course, was his legal father. And Matthew 1 verse 1 says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it starts at Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, and so on and so forth. Takes this down to verse 15. And Eliud begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Methan, and Methan begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Yosef, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So again, this takes us, this is Joseph's lineage, and this was the legal lineage from which Christ got his right to the throne, since he was Joseph's heir, even though he wasn't legal heir, though he wasn't Joseph's son. But there's something interesting in this lineage that if we knew our Old Testament really well, we'd know is a problem. That problem occurs back at verse 11 in the lineage, where it says, And Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. Now, this Jeconias is in Joseph's line, and yet this Jeconias being in Joseph's line is a problem. Why is it a problem? Well, it's a problem if we know Jeremiah chapter 22. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 22. And verse 24. This is talking about this man, Jeconiah. As I live, saith the Lord, though Coniah... Now, the Lord cuts the jeh off the front. And I've heard that suggested, that that's because jeh is Jehovah. And so he's cutting his name off. But in, in any case, this Coniah, as he calls him, this is Jeconiah. Though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand. Yet would I pluck thee thence. I would pluck him off if he was my signet. And I will give thee into the hand of them that seek thy life, and into the hand of them whose face thou fearest, even into the hand of Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. And I will cast thee out, and thy mother that bare thee into another country, where ye were not born, and there shall ye die. But to the land whereunto they desire to return, thither shall they not return. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. I forgot my mic. You must have still been able to hear me. I guess I talk loud. There we go. Now it's on. <laughs> um, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David, and ruling any more in Judah. So Jeconiah was cursed, and it says, No man of his seed 
shall prosper or sit on the throne of David anymore in Judah. So the Lord was so angry at this Jeconiah, or Coniah as he calls him, that he said, I'm going to cast him from the throne and none of his seed will ever sit on it again. And yet we see that Joseph is descended from Jeconiah. Well, how could any, any son of Joseph sit on the throne then? When, when any seed of Coniah is not to sit on the throne. Well, of course, Matthew 1 gives us the solution to that, that though Christ is Joseph's legal heir, he was not Joseph's seed. So he was not descended from Coniah. So he could inherit the throne without inheriting the curse. Now, interestingly, this curse was at least partially rescinded in the great-grandson of Coniah, Zerubbabel, in Haggai chapter 2 and verses 20 through 23. Coniah's, or great-grandson, Zerubbabel, it says, Again, the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. So he was the grandson of Jeconiah. He was not the king, but he was the governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them. And the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, he was Jeconiah's grandson, saith the Lord, and I will make thee as a signet. For I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. So he says to Jeconiah's great-grandson, I'm going to make you like a signet. Remember Jeconiah, he said, if you were a signet, I would pluck you off my hand and throw you away. But to his great-grandson, he says, you're my servant, I'm going to make you like a signet. Well, understand that the Lord is always willing to be gracious. When he curses someone in their family line, well, if anyone from that family line will turn from their wicked ways and serve him, he can bless that person. He can at least partially mitigate that curse. And he did with Zerubbabel, this faithful man. And yet Zerubbabel, though he was governor in Judah, notice he never sat on the throne. He never was king. That, the Lord's curse stayed true, but he did at least partially turn it. And the Lord is always willing to be gracious. You know, his promises of blessing will always come true, but his promises of cursing, well, he can always mitigate it if any one of the cursed will turn to him in truth. And this was Zerubbabel. And yet this curse continued through Joseph, the heir to the throne and yet cursed to never be able to take the throne. And yet, guess what? His legal son, his heir, is not of his seed. And so he can take the throne. You know, Jesus Christ was the only descendant of the royal line who could take the throne. Because he was only, the only descendant of the royal line who was not the seed of Jeconiah. Very interesting. So this was Joseph, the heir to the throne and yet cursed to never take it. Well, that's a, that's a hard position to be in. Now in Luke chapter 3, we have another lineage. Luke chapter 3, and starting in verse 23. Now this lineage is the opposite of Matthew in that it takes us from Christ and Joseph and it goes backwards instead of going from Abraham forwards. And in Luke 3.23, it says, Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, 
the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. Now this seems kind of a problem, doesn't it? Because we just read in Matthew that Joseph was the son of Jacob. Well, if Joseph was the son of Jacob in Matthew, how could he be the son of Heli in Luke? And I think most expositors agree that Luke's lineage is actually Mary's. Mary's lineage. Mary's line. And it does not pass through Jeconiah. And it doesn't actually go through Solomon. It goes, it goes from David, but through David's son Nathan, who never took the throne. And so it's a Davidic line, but it's not the royal line. But why would Joseph be called the son of Heli? How could a man be the son of his father-in-law? You know, we can call him a son-in-law, but we don't call him your actually, actually your son. Well, Numbers 36 tells about a rule in which a man could be the heir of his father-in-law. It's the last chapter in the book of Numbers. And see, earlier in Numbers, there had been this, this problem. There had been this man, Zelophehad, who had died in the wilderness with no male heirs. Now, he had five daughters, but no male heirs. And according to the, to the law in Israel, the, the family line was to be carried on by the son. The son would inherit from the father. He would take the place of the father, and he would be the, the new patriarch carrying on the family line. But this man died with no sons, just daughters. And so his daughters came to Moses, and they said, you know, it's not fair that our father, who was no worse than anybody else, you know, he, wasn't, he, he died in the wilderness for his sins, just like all the other men died in the wilderness for their sins. It, it isn't fair that his line should die out of Israel. So let us inherit for our father. And, and the Lord said, daughters of Zelophehad, that was good. That was a good thing. I agree, let them inherit. But in chapter 36, the relatives of Zelophehad, they have a problem with that. And they come to Moses in verse 2, and they said, The Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for an inheritance by lot to the sons of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, unto his daughters. And if they be married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the sons of Israel, then shall their inheritance be taken from the inheritance of our fathers, and shall be put to the inheritance of the tribe whereunto they are received. So it shall be taken from the lot of our inheritance. So this would be the way things worked. Any, anything that a, a woman took into her marriage then goes to her husband's family. See, in their families, it was all about the family business. The family business was run by the father, the patriarch. And when he couldn't run it anymore, his firstborn son would take over the business. And he'd be the new patriarch and run the family business. Now, a, a daughter, when he had a daughter, he would, he would give her away to some son of some other father's family business. And she would leave his family business and join the family business of her new husband. So they actually considered that a daughter left her family when she got married. You know, your daughter's kids would not be your grandkids. <laughs> because she left your family when she got married. Now, and on the other hand, the, the, the girl you brought into the family to marry your son, she then became part of your family. She's going to work for your family business from now on. So the problem was that if you gave an inheritance to a daughter, she went and married some other, into other, some other family, she would take everything with her, and it would become the possession of that family and not of the family of her birth. So they say this isn't fair that inheritance that should belong to our tribe would go to some other tribe. So the Lord heard this too, verse 5, and, he, and Moses commanded the sons of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying, The tribe of the sons of Joseph has said well. This is the thing which the Lord doth command concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, Let them marry to whom they think best, 
Only to the family of the tribe of their father shall they marry. Now see, in Israel, you had Israel the nation, and then you remember you had the 12 tribes under the nation. Well, then in those tribes, you had tribal families. And these tribal families would be based often on, on one of the sons or grandsons or great-grandsons of the original tribal father. That could even be even later. For example, David became a, 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 fam, a father of a tribal family, the family of David. But these, these tribal families, these family units, they could become quite large. There could be thousands of people in them based on over many generations back that the family father was. So it's not like it's, it's this little tiny, you can only marry your cousins or something. But he says, let them marry within that tribal family. So they won't take their inheritance into some other tribe and some other tribal family. It'll stay within the tribal family. Well, how does this apply to Joseph being Heli's heir? Well, what if Heli, Mary's father, had no sons? What if all he had was daughters? just like Zelophehad in the Old Testament. Well, then Mary would become her father's heir. Now, we don't read of Mary having any brothers. We do read of her having at least one sister. We don't read of Mary having any brothers. So it seems to me from, that if Joseph was his father-in-law's heir, that means Heli must have died without sons. Now, the thing with that is, remember, both Joseph and Mary were living in Nazareth. And Nazareth was not the town of David's tribal family. That was Bethlehem. Remember, Bethlehem's the city of David, the city of David's tribal family. And yet Mary is of the family of David, and she's living in Nazareth. Joseph is also of the family of David living in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was not you know, like Milwaukee or something. It was not some giant city. It, it, was, a, it was a small town. A lot of their towns back then were small towns. And so to have even one family from the line of David living in this small town that is not their ancestral territory would be unusual. To have two families of the tribe of David living there would be very unusual. It's very likely that these were the only two families from the tribe of David living in Nazareth. Now this is a problem for Mary if she has to marry someone from her tribal family because she's the heir of her father and that's what the law requires. Now for Joseph it's not a problem. He can marry anyone he likes. You know, he, he, he's got no, no compunction to have to marry this girl who's in this situation where she has to marry someone from the line of David. So for Joseph to marry her, he is quite possibly the only bachelor available for her to legally marry, the only one. So for her, she has no choice, Joseph or nothing. For Joseph, he has every choice. He doesn't have to marry her, and yet he does. So I think we see here Joseph's compassion and Joseph's concern for the law. He sees that Mary is in a bind. She has to probably marry him or no one. And so he, very compassionately and, and very much according to the law, says, okay, I'll marry her, as the law says, and I'll become the, the heir of my father-in-law. So this shows, I think, Joseph's compassion and his concern for the law, not just keeping it himself, but helping Mary keep it as well. Now let's go back to the book of Luke. Or, uh, sorry, Mark, we were in Luke. Let's go back, or Matthew. I'll get it eventually. <laughs> Matthew, we were in Luke. Let's go back to Matthew. And here we really have Joseph. Joseph's perspective as Mary is found pregnant. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. 
Now the birth of Jesus Christ is on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So this says that Mary was espoused to Joseph. Now what does that mean? Well, we use this word spouse, and we use it to be kind of a generic word for a husband or wife. You know, I have a spouse. So, you know, if a man, it's your wife. If you're a woman, it's your husband. This is my spouse. That's what we mean by spouse. What does this mean, espoused? Well, a lot of people say, well, that means like, like engaged or betrothed. Well, the problem is it's really something that we don't have in our culture. Their marriage traditions and customs were just foreign to us. And if we find any word, I, I tend to use the word betrothed. But even that, I realize, is an English word referring to English customs. And if you're betrothed, you probably just think, oh, that's an old word for engaged. That's what you probably think when you hear the word betrothed. But I, I'm trying to use it because it is an old word to try to, to, try to give room here for us to put in a, a culture and a custom that we don't have in our society. See, their marriage customs were very foreign to us. They're very different. For one thing, their marriages were often arranged. Sometimes for the son, especially for the woman, the father would arrange it. And whether the, the son arranged it for himself or whether his father arranged it, I mean, it was all ultimately under the control of the patriarch of the family. And how much say the patriarch gave their children in the matter was up to them because they were the ones in charge of it. Now, the way it usually worked is that that the man would remember his daughter, he's trying to find another family for her to be in. She's going to leave his family business, go to another family. They would wait until she had her first period, which in Israel was about 14 or 15. Now that seems unusual to us because most of our girls have a period quite a ways before 14 or 15, but we have it quite advanced. I mean, what in the world does a little girl that young need a period for? And it's unfortunate that we have it so soon. But in Israel, I understand, it was about 14 or 15 was when she'd have her first period. They'd say, aha, she's ready to get married, so he would go out and, and work on arranging a marriage for her. And they would find some, some suitable family in the area of more or less equal station. This would be a good family for her to join. Remember, she's joining the family, working for the patriarch, the father of the family business. And he would arrange the marriage. And then they would go and they would have a, we could call it a betrothal ceremony. And that was the legally binding ceremony. The betrothal ceremony. And from then on, they are a couple. They're legally joined. However, they don't come together, live together, and be married. The girl, she goes off, and, and she's getting trained as to how to be a wife, how to run a household, how to do all the domestic tasks she's going to have to do. The boy is going off and, and being trained in how to, get, how to get set up in the family business, how to work his own business. If he's the oldest son, he's going to run the family business. If he's a younger son, he's going to... Maybe have to start his own business or have his own corner of it or whatever it might be. But he's getting trained in on how to do that. And they're getting prepared for the marriage. And then when both families agree they're ready, and it's usually about a year later, it would say the girl's family would say, she's ready, she's all trained in. The boy's family said he's ready to, to start his work his own business or whatever he's going to do. And then they would have a celebration. They would have a feast. They would have a celebration. Uh, the man would go to the girl's house and conduct her from there back to his own house. And then they would be married. But you see, that would be about a year later. And during that, during that year, they were legally bound, but not yet married. So you could say the woman was a betrothed wife and the man was a betrothed husband. Now, it was not engaged because they were legally bound. 
And to break that took a divorce. Even though they hadn't come together yet and hadn't what we call consummated the marriage yet, they were legally bound. It took a divorce to break it. And any unfaithfulness to the relationship was adultery, just the same as it would have been afterwards. So it'd be kind of like if, if we had the, the marriage ceremony and then waited a year till you had the reception. You know, you, we usually wait an hour or two. <laughs> you wait a year till you have the reception because the marriage is just like the reception. It's a celebration, but there's no legal ceremony. That was already done at the betrothal. So that's what Mary is. She is a betrothed wife. She's not single. She's not engaged. She's betrothed. She's been legally bound to Joseph. To break it would take a divorce. Any unfaithfulness to it would be adultery. Now, before they came together, before they had the marriage celebration and he conducted her back to his home, she was found with child. She was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, this puts Joseph in a bind. Verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, and he was her husband. He was her betrothed husband. He was not her married husband. He was her betrothed husband. Now, we don't talk about an a, uh, engaged husband or an engaged wife. So, again, this is, this is different from our culture. But he is her husband already. He's legally bound to her, even though they're not married yet. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away or to divorce her privily, quietly, privately. Now, what does it mean, a public example? Well, if she was a betrothed wife and she had been unfaithful to her husband, the public example we have in Deuteronomy 22:21. Here would be the public example. Then they shall bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house. Now see, the father was in charge of making sure that the daughter came to her marriage pure. You know, they didn't have, girls back then didn't really have much opportunity not to come to their marriage pure. For one thing, like I said, as soon as they had their period at 14 or 15, they'd go out and get them engaged. I mean, there wasn't a big time in between. Then about a year later, they'd get married. So there's only maybe a year, year and a half where they even could be not pure before marriage. But then... A girl would, until she was married, would never be allowed to be in the presence of a man alone unless he was like her father or her brother. Other than her father and her brother, she'd never be in the presence of a man alone, un, unescorted. You know, there's no, you know, the boy comes up and honks the horn at the door and the, the father sends his daughter out, she gets in the car and goes off with him and they go on a date. There was nothing like that. There was no opportunity. It was up to the father to make sure his daughter came to the marriage pure. And if, if she didn't, that was considered partially his fault. He didn't watch out for her like he should have. So she is brought to his door. And the men of the city shall stone her with stones that she die, because she hath wrought folly in Israel to play the whore, the prostitute, in her father's house. So shalt thou put away evil from among you. So this is, would have been the public example. She would have been put to death in front of her father's door. Now her father maybe was dead. Like I said, if he only had female heirs, how does he know he's only going to have female heirs? Well, probably because he's not alive anymore. Well, this would just lead to the, to the idea that she was maybe, she didn't have a father to watch out for, so, you know, that's what happens with fatherless waifs. Probably figure that. That would have been the public example. But he's not willing to do that. He's going to divorce her quietly instead. Now, as I said, this betrothal took a divorce to break. It's not just, you know, give the ring back and it's done. They're legally bound. It takes a divorce. 
Now I notice there, though, this seems very gracious. He's not going to do this. This seems very gracious. But the Bible doesn't say that Joseph was a gracious man and wasn't willing to make her a public example. I think that's what most people think. Oh, he was just gracious. He wasn't going to ever put to death. It says, Joseph, being a just man, was not willing to make her a public example. Now, how is that just? You know, you think a just man would want to follow the law. A just man would want to ever put to death. You think it would be a gracious man who wants to spare her that, not a just man. Why does it say Joseph being a just man? How is it just to not put her to death? Why was that a just man? Now, some people, therefore, have tried to adjust the verse and make it say something like, though he was a just man, yet he was not willing to make her a public example. Like, he was usually just, but in this case, he wasn't going to be just. But that's kind of rewriting it. It doesn't say, though he was a just man, yet he was not willing to make... No. It says he was a just man. How is this just? Well, I would make a suggestion, what if... And nobody ever seems to think of this what if. You know, everybody just assumes that Joseph comes along, his betrothed wife is pregnant, he says to her, you know, what happened? You know, what did you do to me here? And she tells this crazy story about an angel coming and her having a child as a virgin. Everybody says, well, of course he didn't believe her. I mean, who would? <laughs> of course he doesn't believe her. This is some kind of crazy, complicated lie. He doesn't believe her for a second. That's what everybody assumes, I think. Well, what if we're maybe assuming too much there? What if, if he didn't necessarily 100% believe her, what if he at least entertained the possibility that she was telling the truth? You know, she was telling the truth. You know, when people are telling some wild lie, you know, they're trying, to, they're trying to tell it in a way that you don't detect a lie, right? So it doesn't sound like a lie. It sounds like the truth. The advantage you have when you're telling the truth is you don't have to worry about that. When you're telling the truth, you don't have to worry about making this lie sound like a truth. You're just telling the truth. There, there's a conviction. There's a reality behind telling the truth that liars are always trying to fake in their lie but that only someone who's really telling the truth can, can put in there. And Mary really was telling the truth, you know. And could Joseph have been just maybe young enough or naive enough or maybe just to have enough godly wisdom, perhaps, that he entertained the idea that maybe she was telling the truth? Well, what, what would the law say if she was telling the truth? Well, See, any man who, who, came, who started spreading the word, I took this woman and I found her not a virgin. And yet he wasn't telling the truth. In Deuteronomy 22, verse 17, it says that the parents, her parents, Lo, he hath given occasion of speech against her, saying, I found not thy daughter a maid, and yet these are the tokens of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. Now, this matter of the tokens of the virginity, I'm not going to go into that, that it's kind of a difficult subject. But anyway, they proved that she was a virgin. The elders of the city shall take that man and chastise him, and they shall immerse him. That's just Old English for fine. They shall fine him an hundred of silver, hundred silver coins, and give them to the father of the damsel, because he has brought up an evil name upon a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife, and he may not put her away all his days." 
So for a man to bring an evil report on a virgin of Israel was illegal. And he was to be fined, and he was a lawbreaker. He was to be fined, was to be punished if he did that. So if Joseph thought if there was any possibility that Mary was telling the truth, he would have known that it was illegal to bring a bad name on a virgin in Israel. That was a shameful thing, and he would be condemned by the law for doing that. So a just man, if he thought that she might be a virgin, why he couldn't legally bring her to court and make her a public example if he thought she might be telling the truth. But think about it too, if, if he thought maybe she was telling the truth. What was the truth she told him? That this child she's having is God's. God said his Holy Spirit was impregnating her. Now if you had a rival for your lady love, and that rival's a man, why maybe, maybe you can win. Maybe you can beat the guy. But if your rival's God, I'll tell you what, you might as well just throw in the towel. I mean, you're not going to win that contest. If God wants his betrothed wife, maybe you should just give up. Say, okay, God, if you want her, you can have her. So he's thinking about this. And verse 20, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So while he thought on these things, I think he's in the situation where he's kind of made up his mind what he's going to do. But he's still going over it in his mind, trying to decide, is this for sure what I want to do? Have you ever done that? It's a hard decision. It's hard to come to a, to a decision. You came to the decision. You're pretty sure this is what you're going to do, but you keep going over it in your mind just to be sure that this is really the right thing to do. You've, you've pretty much made up your mind, but you keep reviewing it just to be sure. <laughs> keep going over all the facts and reviewing it and being sure, yes, this is really what I'm going to do. You pretty much made up your mind, but you're still going over and over it in your head. Well, he's doing that, I think. And he falls asleep, and the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Joseph, son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. Now, why would he be afraid to take his wife? Well, if he thought she was telling the truth, maybe. Even if he thought she was maybe telling the truth. That could be enough to make him afraid. God, God wants my wife. I'd be afraid to take her. Maybe that would make him afraid. Why would he be afraid if he didn't think there was any chance she was telling the truth? Fear not to take unto thee Mary the wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. He confirms what Mary would have probably told Joseph. But says still, don't be afraid to take her. You know, God doesn't, God doesn't want you not to take her. He wants you to take her. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So he tells him, go ahead and take her. God doesn't look at himself as your rival. You can take her. Well, verse 24, Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife. So that meant he would have done the marriage ceremony. He would have gone to the house and taken her and brought her back to his house, received her as his wife. With the one exception, verse 25, And knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So the one exception to the usual process is usually when he took her home to be his wife, he would then have relations with her. They would become sexually intimate. But in this case, he didn't. He brought her to his home, but he wasn't intimate with her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. 
Now, notice that clearly implies that he was intimate with her after that. She was not the perpetual virgin some try to make out. But notice that this shows that Mary... What, what would everyone else have thought? You know, this is something for Joseph to do. This is something for Joseph to do. Because now everybody's going to assume that the child was his. Well, that isn't quite as bad as having a child out of wedlock. It's like, it, it would be frowned on. It would be like, what was the matter with you? You couldn't wait a year? You know, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't do the expected thing? Uh, it, would, it, would not be, it would not be an honorable thing to have impregnated your betrothed before you came together. It would be looked at as kind of what's wrong with you. Yet he's willing to take that upon himself, just like she was willing. But notice this, that this means that Mary, when she conceived, was a betrothed wife, and when she gave birth, she was a married one. You know, I've heard some people try to say, and they point out the radical, unexpected character of Christ's birth, and it's true. There was a lot about it that was radical and unexpected. But sometimes they'll say things like, uh, the radical, unexpected manner of Christ's birth, they'll say he was born to an unwed teenage mother. They'll say an unwed teenage mother. Well, a couple things about that. Number one, all girls got married in their teens. That was just the way it was. Like I said, they would get married a, a year or two after their, their first period at 14 or 15. So they're typically getting married 15, 16 years old. So that means unless they had some kind of problem having kids, they would all have their first child in their teens. Being a teenage mother was probably close to 100% of the girls out there were teenage mothers. That was just the way it was. Second of all, unwed. You know, it's, it's, it's sad in our society, so many unwed girls. But I don't think we should try to make ourselves feel better about it by trying to make out that the Lord's mother was an unwed mother. She was a betrothed wife when she conceived, and she was a married wife when she gave birth. And as one scholar said, God honored the institution of marriage by seeing to it his son was brought into the world inside it. He didn't bypass it. His son didn't come into the world outside the confines of marriage. He came into the world inside the confines of marriage. So, you know, and I'm sorry if your little princess went out and got herself in trouble, but don't try to comfort yourself by blaspheming God to try to make yourself feel better. It's not right. God honored marriage in this whole situation. Now, the actual birth. Luke 2. Luke 2. We can see this story. And what, what, did jo what would Joseph's place have been here? Well, it's mostly focused on Mary. But in, in Luke 2, it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. So Mary now is his wife. Notice she's with him. She's living with him. They're married in every sense, except the fact that they haven't been intimate yet. She's living in his house. She's his wife. Uh, the only way she still is betrothed is that they haven't actually been intimate yet. In every other way, she's his wife. She's living with him as his wife. So he goes to be taxed with her. Being great with child. This probably means third trimester. Third trimester is great with child. 
And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Now, you know, this Christmas story, the way it's typically told, and most of us probably hear the Christmas story before we ever read it from the Bible. And the way the Christmas story is told, a lot of things get mixed into it, which are not really justified in the Bible record. In fact, I would say the Christmas story as it's usually told takes on as kind of the half, half Bible truth and half Christmas myth. Because these mythological elements that, that are just always mixed in there and are always told but are really not justified by Scripture are the way we tell the story. And part of this Christmas myth is that Mary and Joseph, they arrive at Bethlehem and it's the night Mary needs to give birth. And she's going into contractions, labor pains, they have to find somewhere to get birth and yet they just arrive, they don't know where they're going to stay, so they go around, they knock on the door of the inn. Hey, do you have any rooms? Nope, we don't have any rooms. They go to the next inn, knock on the door. Do you have any rooms? Nope, we don't have any rooms. So finally some innkeeper says, oh, we have a stable out back, you can give birth in the stable. So they go there and they give birth in the stable. But is, is this picture really justified by the scriptures here? And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. So see, they had already arrived, and days were accomplished. They had been in Bethlehem, they had been there for days. You know, Joseph wasn't taking his very pregnant, about-to-give-birth wife around on a donkey through the countryside. Yeah, she was in her third trimester, but he brought her there probably well before time for her to give birth. And then while they were there, her days were accomplished and it was time to give birth. So they had been there for a while. So this picture really doesn't make a very good picture of Joseph. That he's got this wife just about to give birth and he's traveling around the countryside with her on a donkey. Not very compassionate to her. But the Bible picture doesn't show that. Yeah, she was in her third trimester, but he brought her well before she gave birth. And then while they were there, the days were accomplished for her to be delivered. Well, then what's this about there being no room for them in the inn? Well, there's a couple of things you need to understand. And one is that a woman giving birth became unclean. It made her unclean to give birth. And most inns, the way they were at the time, you know, our hotels, we have all these separate rooms. You go to a hotel, you rent a separate room. Well, buildings with a lot of separate rooms are not so common back then. Most buildings didn't have many rooms, maybe, maybe one or two rooms at most. So these inns with all these separate rooms, that's not the way inns were. Most inns, and maybe some really expensive ones weren't this way, but most inns were just one big giant common room, and you took your bedding and you throw it down wherever you could find a space, and that's where you spent the night. It wasn't comfortable, it wasn't private, it wasn't, it wasn't a very great way to spend the night, but traveling was hard back then. So you were here, and maybe the next person was there, and maybe the next person was there, and you're all in the same room. But you can't do that when you're giving birth and going to be unclean. But there's also the fact that this word they translate in, which is the word khan, K-H-A-N, the khan, you know, that's also used in scripture when Christ is going to be celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And they say, You've, you, you, you go to this city, you see this man carrying a water pitcher, because usually that was the woman's job. So you'll see a man carrying a water pitcher, you follow him to the house he goes to, and say to the owner of the house, where is the con where I can celebrate the Passover with my disciples? So he's not asking for an inn. He's asking for a guest room. This word con could mean inn, but it could also mean guest room. 
Now, the way their houses were, like I said, most houses were, were not a whole lot of rooms. You had the big central area, which was where you did most of your living. But then some of them off to one side, they would have a little separate area, whether or not it had a door. Uh, but it was a separate area, there's at least a wall in between. And that was the, the guest room, where important honored guests would get that room. Now, Mary and Joseph come to this town. This is, this is Joseph's traditional family town. So he probably has relatives here with which he can stay. Remember, Joseph is a poor carpenter. He, he is not some, and, and he's young. So if he arrives and he's going to stay with one of his relatives, but you know a lot of people are coming back to Bethlehem for this taxes, and maybe somebody arrived before him who was more important. So these more important relatives, they got the con. So he's not even important enough to get the guest room. Well, where else could they go to give birth then if the con is already occupied by somebody more important than Mary and Joseph? Well, on the other side of the house, you'd have a little lower area, and that was the area where in the wintertime you would bring the family animals into the house. Now we talk, you know, we have this saying, what, do you live in a barn? <laughs> well, you know, back then, maybe you did live in a barn, at least in the wintertime, because in the winter you wouldn't leave your animals out in the cold, drizzly weather. And maybe the family goat from which you get the milk or uh, the sheep from which you get the wool to make your clothes. You bring those inside and you put them in this little lowered area. There's maybe kind of fenced off a little bit. And that's where those animals stay in the wintertime when it's cold and wet outside. They can't be outside. They stay in that little area. But Mary's giving birth. It's not wintertime. Sorry, probably not December 25th. Best guess I would make is September. So the animals are outside. So this animal area is open. The animals are not in there at the time. Since we can't be in the con, we might as well be in the area where the animals go in the winter and they aren't there right now since it's not winter. And that's a little separate area. She can be unclean there and you know, not make everybody in the house unclean and give birth there. Well, if she gives birth there, where is she going to lay the, the child? Well, in the, in the feed trough you have there for the animals to use in the wintertime when they're there. You lay them in the, in the feed trough. So this is probably what's going on. She's probably giving birth in that, in that little animal area and laying him in the manger because there's no room for them in the con. More important relatives are there, so they, they have to go on the other end of the house and be in the animal area. Not exactly the, the most respectable birth for a new king, <laughs> but that's, that seems to be where it was. Now she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Now that was not unusual at all. That was the common thing to do with an infant for a peasant girl. You know, that wasn't the way the, the high and mighty and rich noble women did it. That was the way the peasant girls did it, wrapped them in swaddling clothes. So everything about his birth says peasants, poor peasants, unimportant peasants. Not your typical birth of a king. Lays him in the animal feed trough because there's no room for them in the con. Now, while everything here is very humble, Yet then we have this interesting incident with the shepherds. By the way, I wonder what Joseph was thinking. We're supposed to be concentrating on Joseph. What was Joseph thinking? He can't even provide, you know, he, he doesn't even rate the guest room. His wife has to give birth in the animal area and lay the newborn king in the manger. Well, there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, shepherds understand these were not the, exactly the royal nobles of the land. 
you know, everybody, just about everybody had to have sheep. That's where you got your wool to make clothes. You didn't go to the apartment store. You had sheep. <laughs> and you sheared them and you made clothes. So everybody had to have sheep, but taking care of them wasn't the, the most pleasant job. They were stubborn and smelly. and No, it was not important work to take care of them. It was kind of like your, your garbage collectors. right? You, you have to have garbage collecting. It's a very important job. If we didn't have it, we'd all be in trouble. But it's not exactly the most lucrative or, or uh, highest status job you could have to be the trash collector. So there were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, Messiah the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, Bethlehem was a small town. There couldn't be that many babies born at the same time, and probably he's probably the only one being born at that time. But you'll find this newborn king wrapped in swaddling clothes like a peasant boy and lying in an animal feed trough. Well, I mean, there couldn't be two like that in Bethlehem. So this would be pretty clear that he found the right boy. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying... Now here's another part where our Christmas myth comes in. What does everybody think? The angels were singing. Hark the herald angels sing. Well, I think we all like that picture of these beautiful angel choir singing. It doesn't say they were singing. It says they were saying. Maybe they were chanting it or saying it in unison. But they weren't singing. Hark the herald angels say, I guess. Glory to the newborn. Oh, then it doesn't rhyme. But oh well. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came in haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. So here's Mary, and here's Joseph. You know, after he doesn't even rate the, the guest room, and his wife's son is born and laid in the manger, well, suddenly, the honored guests show up, and who are they? The shepherds. You know, that, that's like I said, the garbage, they pull up in the garbage truck and, and come out, you know, in their, their rough clothes and smelling like garbage. Well, these guys come in, they come in smelling like sheep in their rough clothes for being in the field. And they're the ones God sent to see the newborn king. Well, this certainly must have been surprising to Joseph and to Mary. The ones God sends to show up are the shepherds. But when they had seen it, they made known abroad this saying which was told them about this child. So, so that's really something for Joseph to consider here. God sent shepherds. Now when it comes to this, what I've called the Christmas myth, the Christmas story the way we usually tell it, which is half based in the Bible and half things we make up, they always stop at verse 20, don't they? Have you ever heard anybody read in their Christmas reading and you know their uh, nice emotional reading on the radio or whatever it is, have you ever heard them read from verse 20 to verse 21? They always stop at verse 20, don't they? Why? Verse 21, And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Oh, the circumcising of the child. See, we don't like that in our Christmas myth. Why not? Well, we like the shepherds because, you know, this, this boy, he's born not just for the high and mighty, but for the lowly. For the common people, for your blue-collar workers. And we like the wise men. You know, kings and nobles come to honor him. 
And we love the angels. Uh, you know, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. We love that, all people. But then we get to verse 21, and he's circumcised in the eighth day, showing what? That he was a Jew. We don't want Jesus to be a Jew. We want him to be a Christian. We don't want to hear about his circumcision. We'd rather hear about him going to church than going to the synagogue, going to the temple. Guess what? Jesus was a Jew. We don't like that in our Christmas myth. But he was. He was circumcised on the eighth day like any good Jewish boy would be. And who would have circumcised him? Traditionally, it was the father. Joseph would have circumcised him. So who circumcised him on the eighth day? Joseph. That would have been his job, his task as the father, to initiate his son into the law. And Christ is born under the law. Then verse 22, we also don't like this in our Christmas myth, when the days of our purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now what is this, her purification according to the law of Moses? Well, this we have in Leviticus 12. This was the law for the birth of a child. When a child is born, it says Leviticus 12, Verse 2, speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a woman have conceived seed and born a man-child, then she shall be unclean seven days, according to the days of the separation for her infirmity shall she be unclean. And in the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And she shall then continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days, thirty-three days. She shall touch no hallowed, no holy thing, nor come into the sanctuary till the days of her purifying be fulfilled. See, there were different levels of uncleanness. You know, not every level was leper where you cover your face and separate from everyone else and shout unclean if they get close. This level was just, she couldn't touch a holy thing and she couldn't go into the sanctuary. That was this level of uncleanness. So you hear unclean, don't think all unclean is the same. There is, this is pretty minorly unclean. And then there's, you know, the leper is majorly top level unclean. And there's levels in between. But this unclean just means she can't go into the temple sanctuary. She can't touch anything holy until 40 days after. Now then it says, the female child was 80 days. But then verse 6, And when the days of her purifying are fulfilled for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation unto the priest. Then verse 8, And if she be not able to bring a lamb, in other words, she's too poor to afford a lamb, for her husband is, then she shall bring two turtles, well, this, doesn't, this means turtle doves, not turtles. Turtles were not sacrificed, but turtle doves, or two young pigeons, the one for the burnt offering, the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So what does it say, verse 23 of Luke 2? As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be holy to the Lord, and offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So which sacrifice were Mary and Joseph bringing? The normal one or the one for people too poor to afford the normal one? They're bringing the one for people too poor to afford the normal one. Well, that's what you'd expect for the people who don't even rate the con. They can't afford the normal one. All they can afford is two turtle doves or two pigeons, which are worth a few cents. That's what they can afford. 
And yet, notice this, sacrifices in the temple. Don't like that in our Christmas myth. No wonder we don't read this part. But Joseph and Mary are good law-keeping Israelites. They're keeping God's law. They're doing what God would want them to do. They're keeping the law. Well, then when they get in the temple, this kind of spectacular event happens. Everything has been, since the shepherds, I think everything's been normal. The normal 40 days go by. On the eighth day, he circumcises a child like every father in Israel always did. 33 days go by like it always do. They go to the temple like they always did. So after, you know, you have these periods of everything's normal, followed by these unusual things. You know, she gets pregnant, and he gets this visit from an angel. That's unusual. But then her pregnancy is normal. Everything's normal. She gives birth is normal. All of a sudden, these shepherds show up. That's unusual. Then the shepherds leave, and he's circumcised, and the 40 days go by. Everything's normal. They get to the temple to present him like every, you know, there's probably other couples there with their newborn babies. They're there just like everybody else. Well, now something else unusual happens. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, Jehovah's Messiah. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God. Now notice that they're doing according to the custom of the law. Now this was important for every firstborn son. And in Exodus chapter 13, you know, this was the story when God brought Israel out of Egypt. Remember the last plague was the plague on the firstborn. And yet the Israelite firstborn were spared by slaying a lamb and putting the blood over the door. And the Lord said, by doing this, he's purchased the firstborn for himself. Exodus 13.2, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn. Whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both a man and a beast, it is mine. So he claimed all the firstborn. And then verse 12, Thou shalt set apart unto the Lord all that openeth the matrix, that is the womb, and every firstling that cometh of a beast which thou hast, the male shall be the Lord's. So every firstborn, he says, belongs to the Lord. So this is Mary's firstborn opening the womb, opening the matrix. And so he belongs to the Lord. So they have to bring him to present him to the Lord and to pay a redemption price for him. And they're doing that. They're keeping the law. But here comes Simeon, takes him up in his arms and blesses him, blessed God, and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. So here they come. They're feeling like normal parents, just like all the other normal parents. And along comes Simeon. He says, now I can depart in peace. I've seen your salvation. Your salvation bringing Messiah, he means, of course. And they marveled at it. Now, Joseph, Mark, Mary was a thinker, but I think Joseph was too. He thought, he pondered, what should he do about Mary? I think he must have pondered about this too, and what a lot he had to ponder about after all this. What an impression this all must have made on him. Well, then to go back to Matthew, we have the incident of the wise men. Matthew chapter 2, When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. 
When Herod the king had heard these things, and Herod was a tyrant, he wanted no word of a rival king. He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. They knew what a tyrant Herod was, and they didn't want him stirred up. <laughs> and when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. So he sent them to Bethlehem. Now there was a problem with them doing that. Because in Luke 2, after they present him at the temple, it says, When they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. After they presented the Lord at the temple, they didn't go back to Bethlehem. They went back to Nazareth. And when did the wise men come? You know, we like in our manger scenes to put the shepherds and the wise men together. Understand, these wise men saw the star signifying his birth, and they were probably way east in, in Babylon, probably our best guess where they were from, Babylonian wise men. Wise men were very, very common and, and very important in Babylonian society. To come from Babylon took them months, maybe a year. These are important men. They had to you know, make sure they wrap up their business, everything was going to be fine while they're gone. They have to collect the servants, they have to prepare for the journey. And Herod, when he, when he tries to kill the Messiah, he kills all the children two and under showing that some time has passed since he was born. So this is not within 40 days of his birth. This is after that. Joseph and Mary are living in Nazareth, not Bethlehem. If Herod sends them to Bethlehem, he's sending them the wrong direction. So verse 9, When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them. And lo indicates surprise. See, when they were coming from the east all the way from Babylon, they weren't following the star the whole way. They saw a star in the east, and yet they went west to get to Israel. Because the star just was a sign telling them the king of Israel had been born. Yet all of a sudden, when the king sends them the wrong way, suddenly the star that they had seen in the east before now appears and guides them. Probably turns them around. You're going south you need to Bethlehem, you need to go north to Nazareth. Till it came and stood over where the young child was. Not the infant at this point, the young child. Maybe between one and two years old. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. See, they hadn't been following it the whole way. This was a new phenomenon. And when they were come into the house, not the stable, the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. Now, it doesn't mention Joseph here. It mentions they came into the house and saw Mary and, and the child. But who opened the door? Yeah, I don't get the feeling that Mary and Joseph were the kind rich enough to afford servants. Who opened the door that they went in and saw Mary and his mother? Probably Joseph opened the door. So even though it doesn't mention him, I think who was there. What did Joseph think of all this? You know, it's been now maybe over a year since Simeon, and this child has been growing, pretty much a normal infant, normal child, and you can fall into the daily routine and just think of him as a normal child, and yet all of a sudden, these rich and powerful men from Babylon show up and bring him their gifts. Well, this must have been something for Joseph to think about. Then verse 13, When they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child, not the infant, but the young child, and his mother, and flee into Egypt, 
and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. You know, life would have been a lot easier for Joseph if he had divorced Mary, wouldn't it? <laughs> now he has to flee to Egypt. Well, but he's got one advantage. He just got a bunch of rich gifts from the wise men. If you're going to go into exile, you know, having just been given a whole lot of rich gifts would really help, wouldn't it? <laughs> and you could fund it before you didn't have the, enough coins to buy anything but a couple of cheap birds to give as a sacrifice. Now you have all of a sudden you have these rich gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh from these wise men. Probably a lot, of, plenty of money to fund going into exile. And understand, Egypt was not a hard place to go. There was a large Israelite contingent in Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt especially, a large proportion of their population was Jewish. So probably that's where they would have went, Alexandria. It would have been very easy to find a Jewish community and fit in in Egypt. Now understand, it didn't take Herod long to die after this. He was toward the end of his checkered career. So they were probably only there a year or two. Christ did not grow up and become a teenager in Egypt. They were probably only there for a year or two at most. But, verse 19, When Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. Now things had probably been a lot easier for them in Egypt than they had been in Israel, because, like I said, of these rich gifts they'd gotten from the wise men. And there was a large Jewish community there, and they'd probably been able to settle down and become quite comfortable. And so this, this was probably a very comfortable situation. It was, probably wasn't so comfortable when they had to flee there by night to get away from Herod. But now that they're there, it's pretty comfortable. And now the angel says, nope, you don't get to stay here. Don't get to be, settle down here. Pull up stakes and go back to Israel. So again... But what does Joseph do? He obeys. He arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Now this time he's considering it. Where should I go? He has two places he could go. He could go to Bethlehem, his ancestral home. Or he could go back to Nazareth, where he'd been before. He hadn't been so successful in Nazareth. I think he was considering, maybe I should go back to Bethlehem this time instead. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither, Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee and came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. So again, God tells him what to do. Don't go to Bethlehem, your ancestral home. Go back to Nazareth, where you were before. Yeah, I know you weren't so successful there, and, and maybe that's the place where they know Mary got pregnant before they came together. You know, that'd be, Maybe that'd be the last place you'd want to go where everybody knows that. Maybe you'd rather go to Bethlehem where they aren't aware of that. The angel says, no, go back to Nazareth. Doesn't make it easy on Joseph, does he? But what does Joseph do? He obeys. He obeys. Joseph was a man who knew how to obey God, even when it meant more hardship than if he hadn't. Now our last story about Joseph is in Luke chapter 2. In Luke 2 we have, in verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. This is what every good Israelite was supposed to do. Go to Jerusalem at Passover. And when he, that is Jesus, was 12 years old, and this was when they were considered an adult, capable of participating in the law. When he was 12, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. When they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. Now, as I said, when he was an infant, when he was very young, they probably didn't notice much difference between him and other infants. 
he, he grew and was like a lot of others. He probably, you know, still spit up sometimes and still filled his diaper, all the things he'd expect a normal infant to do. But as he starts becoming a young child, there are some differences. Now, he is there first, but how do you think God's son acted as a child? You think he was maybe unusually obedient? I think so. <laughs> I think he was maybe unusually mature, uh, unusually compliant and, and always doing the right, very reliable. You know, I think they got used to Jesus acting like an adult long before he was one. They probably could rely on him to always be doing the right thing. They didn't have to watch out for him at all. You know, those younger kids of theirs, on the other hand, <laughs> they're the ones they had to worry about. But Jesus, no, he would always be doing the right thing. So the time comes to go back home, they don't even think about, is Jesus with us? Because of course he is, because he always does what he's supposed to do. So they actually go a day's journey, and then... They sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. Where is he? Suddenly they realize he's not there. Well, any mother who's ever lost a child probably knows the panic that Mary went through at that point. Not to mention there are a day's journey out from Jerusalem. It's not just an easy walk back. When they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem seeking him. And it came to pass after three days. You know, any mother who's lost her child for three minutes knows what it must be to have lost him for three days. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. These would be the doctors, the experts in the law. Now, you imagine a mother, if she's lost her child, how she's going to react when she finds him. Now, there's probably a lot of hysterics and a lot of loud noise. But wait a minute. What if they find this child and he's sitting with, with the president? And the Speaker of the House is there and, and, and the Vice President and maybe some of the Supreme Court justices. Maybe the scene is going to be very different than it probably would have been otherwise. You know, she's probably going to be a lot, it's going to be a lot quieter and, and more subdued. You know, they're going to kind of tiptoe in. There's not going to be a lot of loud screaming and hysterics like there would have been otherwise. But still, when they saw him, they were amazed. Why? Because all that heard him, verse 47, so he was hearing the doctors and asking them questions, and all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So he wasn't just asking the, do the doctors of the law questions. He was also answering questions himself. And everyone was astonished at it. This 12-year-old answering questions about the law. They couldn't believe it. When they saw him, they were amazed, Joseph and Mary. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Now this shows us something about how Mary had come to look at it, right? Thy father and I. She just looked at Joseph as his father. Was Joseph his father? No. But I think Joseph was the kind of man who treated him like his own son. He didn't treat him differently than the younger ones who really were his own sons. You know, that's what every foster father should do. And what is very hard to do. It's very hard. Now, if he's, if he's done it so well, he's even convinced his mother that she calls him your father and I. Well, I think he's done a good job. He's been a good father. But the problem was, they shouldn't have forgotten who his father really was. He said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? See, he kind of chides her back. Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Now, if you had a, a split family situation and a child disappears, maybe the first place the mother should look is at the father's house. Why did Mary and Joseph get to Jerusalem and the first place they looked not be at his father's house? See, they had forgotten who his father was, hadn't they? They got so used to Joseph, thinking of Joseph as his father 
They didn't think when they got to Jerusalem, where should we look? Oh, of course, we should look at his father's house. No, it took him three days to look there. They have forgotten what they should have remembered, who his father was. He has to be about his father's business. They understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. So his mother thought about these things. Well, I can't help but think that his father probably did too. His foster father, his legal father. Now this is actually the last time we read about Joseph in Scripture. When the Lord starts his ministry at 30 years old, we don't see him. So sometime between, most people, most scholars think that sometime between 12 and 30, Joseph must have died. And that's interesting. It shows us, you know, when, when Mary asks the Lord to do something about the wine at the wedding, he says, my hour has not yet come. <laughs> not time for me to work miracles yet. And yet it is mother's word. He does it, of course. He advances it a little bit. But this shows he was concerned with doing God's will, wasn't it? Because when his, when his legal father died, and I, I would think he loved his legal father. He was a very good father for him. But when he died, the Lord was not willing to bypass God's timeline in order to heal him or bring him back to life. So he experienced losing a dear parent. It must have been hard, but he did it. But this was Joseph. Joseph, the faithful father, a man who, when God told him to do something, he did it. Even if it was hard, even if, it, even if he had to pay for it, even if he had to go back to maybe the last place he wanted to go back to, even if he had to flee, go through a lot of hardship, he did what God wanted. He was God's servant. And I think he was willing to raise this boy whom God gave him to raise as if he was his own, a very commendable man. So Mary gets a lot of commendation. I think we should have a lot of commendation for Joseph too. Joseph was a faithful father. And may all God's fathers be as faithful. Well, let's pray and close. Lord, I thank you for the things you studied this morning. I thank you for the story of Christ's birth and the lessons it teaches us. I pray that you'll help all fathers and all mothers and all grandparents to be faithful in being the kind of parents, the kind of grandparents, the kind of examples, and the faithful obedient people obedient to you that we should be. Help us to honor and glorify you in that aspect of our lives. Help us to learn from this example of Joseph to be godly, to be willing even to sacrifice to do what you would have us to do. Thank you for your grace. I bless that you'll be with us through this Christmas season. Help us not to just have a good time with friends and relatives, but also in our hearts to remember the amazing gift of your son, not just that you sent him to earth as a baby, but that he grew up and that he died on our behalf. He died for our sins and rose from the dead for our justification. Pray that everyone here believes that, knows you as the Savior, and has the salvation you offer through Jesus Christ. I thank you most of all for your grace, Lord, in your name. Amen.